I spend probably 70 or 80 days a year below the rim uh, these days. I think that's that's more than probably most rangers. And you certainly get into some, some really remote, wild places. It was, you know, probably 10 years of getting acquainted with the canyon and hiking trails, and then we started to go off trail from there, and it just kept progressing. My name is Kate, and you're listening to an episode of Behind the Scenery Canyon Cuts. Jesse joined me in interviewing Rich Rudeau, a famed canyon explorer. Rich Rudeau, and I've been coming up to the canyon for 30 years now, going places and learning about uh, about things. My first experience with the, with, with the Grand Canyon was in 1989. My, my wife bought my uncle and I a river trip, and so we launched at Lee's Ferry in June uh, with uh, Hatch, and you know, traveled down the river for a week and were pulled out by helicopter at Whitmore, uh, like a lot of commercial trips still are today, up to Barton Ranch. And so during that, you know, week-long introduction, uh, you, you know, it's just you, you quickly realize you do these, you know, side hikes, and we did all of the typical side hikes that, you know, most folks do that are on a river, river trip, like, you know, going up Saddle Canyon in the Marble area, uh, you know, going to Elves Chasm, Deer Creek, you know, Havasu, places like that. And so I had I had that, you know, customary uh, commercial river trip experience. And I was just enthralled with the place. You know, every time we would hike to a, an attraction site, I would be asking the, the boatman, you know, what's up there? <laughs> you know, can't we go further? <laughs> what's, you know, and, and I always got this you know, kind of puzzled look, and ultimately at some point in that week, uh, the river guys at the time, I still remember them, said, you know, you, you should really just get Harvey Butchard's book and learn about this place. And um, Just to give folks listening some context, uh, Harvey Butchard um, is considered the most prolific Grand Canyon hiker in the modern era. He hiked over 10,000 miles in Grand Canyon and pioneered or rediscovered many rim-to-river routes. And so when I got out of the canyon, my brother-in-law and I both, you know, had a real interest in hiking at that point, and we were in our late 20s, I guess. And so we started just hiking the trails that everybody hikes, you know, starting with, you know, Bright Angel and and South Kaibab and doing a rim-to-rim, you know, down South Kaibab, up North Kaibab. And ultimately, you know, it's you kind of scroll through the 90s, you know, I'm, I'm reading Harvey's book about these routes, and we started to get more interested in, in going off trail and doing some of these routes that, you know, Harvey had talked about in his very terse prose. There's often a moment when you realize just how meaningful each word in every sentence is um, for Harvey Butcher. Did you, have you had one of those? Did you have one of those <laughs> moments? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, one time, this is probably 2001, I'm kind of guessing on time frames here, it was close to 20 years ago, my brother-in-law Dale and I had the idea to go off Swamp Point and down Saddle Canyon into the Tapete's Amphitheater. And so we had never done that. George had actually talked about that trip. George Stack connected horizontally through the canyon a lot of Harvey's rim-to-river routes. But the idea was to go down to 
the junction with Crazy Jug and Saddle Canyon and then exit this route that goes out of Crazy Jug Canyon up to the Esplanade level and then traverse the Esplanade level toward Bridger's Knoll but go out this sneak route in between Crazy Jug and Bridger's Knoll. So so we had this grand plan, and it was a mixture of some stuff that George and, and Harvey had, had written about. And we were depending on Harvey's terse prose for the red ball break to get out of Crazy Jug and then to get up the rim break to get out between Crazy Jug and Bridger's Knoll. So we were following George's instructions down Saddle Canyon and had a great time and found water. And they were sitting there that first night kind of reading Harvey's sentence and a half on this exit out of Crazy Jug, this red ball break near the mouth of Crazy Jug. And I was starting to get really nervous about this whole enterprise because it was, you know, it was super hot. It was well over 100 degrees. And the, the thinking was, you know, if we miss that, we're probably okay in, you know, retreating a different way. But uh, we didn't really want to do that. So we were having this debate about the meaning of, you know, six words that Harvey put in a sentence and a half. <laughs> and and uh, so we finally decided we would give it a try. And uh, we tanked up with eight liters of water to go up this red ball break because it was hot and we weren't going to find water. We knew once we got up the Esplanade. So we found the red ball break and scrambled up to the top of the Esplanade, you know, relatively straightforward way. We were pretty pleased with ourselves. Uh, but we realized that, you know, we're down to about three liters of water at that point. And so we made a run for, we're on the Esplanade level at the edge of Crazy Jug Canyon, and we're going to traverse the Esplanade to the a, a, a rim break, a break in the Coconino that Harvey had written about. And so, you know, we're traversing across. It's, you know, 105 degrees probably. And I remember it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We're both down to about a liter and a half, and we're sitting under a juniper tree trying to catch the, you know, smallest, trying to catch any shade that we could at that point, looking at the Coquino Cliffs and having this debate about what Harvey's words meant because we weren't picking up the break. We didn't visually see the break. And at that point, it was like, well, this is really a big problem. If we make a guess at what Harvey really, really means and we get to the base of the Coconino and it doesn't go, we're really in big trouble. We don't have the water to make a try at it and then retreat any place. We'd be in big trouble. So we finally kind of cursed Harvey and decided the safe route would be to make our way around Bridger's Knoll and connect with the Thunder River Trail and then go out the Bill Hall Trail to the rim. We did that <laughs> the whole time kind of thinking, oh, man, this is really the long way. That's the, we, we, we could have saved ourselves hours and hours and hours of hiking in the heat had we had some certainty about what Harvey was really talking about. And so by the time we connected with the Thunder River Trail, we were out of water, and it's, I don't know, 6 o'clock at night, it's in the middle of summer, it's still really, really hot. And, of course, we remembered that people leave water caches on that route. We found a, a gallon jug of water that had a date that was two years old. We figured, okay, this one's fair game. And we were just both so thirsty, we were taking a swig, and the water was so hot. I mean, it was like drinking water out of your shower as it comes out of the hot water spigot. But, uh, yeah, that saved us. And we topped out the Bill Hall Trail 9 or 10 o'clock at night or something in the dark. And, uh, you know, the whole time was uh, hours and hours of discussion about what Harvey really meant by those six words. 
And, of course, it bothered us so much that we came back a few weeks later bound and determined to find that coconino break. And, uh, and we did. It didn't turn out to be that hard. So, and so we would go do some of these routes and see more things and learn more things, and we would just get more interested. It was like this place uh, had a magnetic pole that got stronger with each trip that you did. Um, it's, it's funny, like, you know, the, there's the puzzle of trying to parse those six words and then the puzzle of looking at the potential route. And often in Grand Canyon, there are things that look like from a distance, there's no way it goes, but actually are pretty easy. And then the reverse is often also true where it looks like it goes and it's going to be pretty easy, but actually doesn't go at all. Yeah, that's right. There are a lot of these routes that Harvey found that from a distance just look like complete no-goes. There's no way it's going to work. And uh, when you get up and you start climbing around, and that's how a lot of routes are. I mean, I found some routes in the canyon that are really, really fascinating, intricate routes that you would think had no way that they would possibly go. And you're on these routes and you'll find a stick stuck in a crack or you'll find a couple rocks stacked on each other and you immediately realize that it's an ancient Indian route and it totally goes. Uh, one route in the western part of the canyon, it took me four years to put it together. And, you know, just poke, poking at it from the bottom up from the river and then poking at it from the top down from the rim. Uh, and, the, and the crux was between the soup eye and the, and the bottom of the red wall. Uh, you know, the rest was pretty easy. So it, it took about four years and maybe, I don't know, half a dozen trips to kind of piece it all together and realize that it really could go. And and then, of course, you know, when you figure it all out, you start to find signs that, you know, the the ancestral Pueblans were there and, and they used the route too. Yeah, I, I think chances are if it goes, somebody else has been there. Yeah, that's that's right. You know, we started doing things when, where, you know, Harvey would talk about, well, you know, a hand line would be great or, a, you know, you need a short rope there to lower a pack. Or, um, and, and George Steck talked about the same thing. So, and so we started doing these routes where, you know, that were harder and where there was a little climbing involved and you were using some ropes to, you know, either as a hand line or, or to lower packs. And ultimately we started to get more and more confident with that and started to do some things where there were short rappels involved. And I guess some point, maybe 1999 or 2000, my wife got nervous about hearing these stories about what me and her brother were doing, and she thought we were not we, we, we were not educated enough to be doing hard things. So she bought us rock climbing lessons, which you know turned out to be just another faster slide accelerating down the slippery slope. Because once we got you know some training on what to do with ropes and gear, we bought longer ropes and more gear, and would go do harder stuff. And so ultimately that kind of morphed into checking out some canyons that, you know, really didn't have good beta or, or that were hard that involved some anchors and some rappelling. You know, by maybe 2005 or 2006, I'd become acquainted with Todd Martin, and Todd and I had lots of mutual interests, and one of them was idea that there were a lot of slot canyons in the, in the red wall limestone layers of, that probably hadn't been seen before. And we got really interested in in these places because some of these canyons that we were going into were just stunningly beautiful. And so the, the more we did this, the more we got enthusiastic about just finding more of these canyons. And we just, you know, kept going and going and going. 
any given adventure that we take these days, you know, sometimes we did one in October of last year, so just about a year ago, not quite, and I ended up blowing out my rotator cuff on a climb in this canyon, but uh, it was a canyon that hadn't been done before, and, and we had a 600-foot rope with us. So, you know, it just seems to spiral deeper and deeper into the abyss, and you discover that the place is so big you never find the bottom. A 600-foot rope is a pretty punishing load to be carrying through Grand Canyon. Um, so, you know, in all your, your time exploring in Grand Canyon, what, what do you think is the most important thing to know or one of the most, most important things to know if you're traveling off trail in the canyon? Well, by far the most important thing to know is where to get water. And I think that's the problem in the canyon. I, there have been instances where I've walked by a water source, you know, 100 feet away and never knew it was there and, you know, found it four years later and, like, wondered, you know, how could I have missed this? But it's pretty easy to miss water. Yeah, it sure, sure can be, surprisingly, especially those potholes where there's not necessarily as much growing around it as there would be a spring. You can't yeah. spot it from a distance. Yeah, and, and the potholes the potholes are interesting on the Esplanade. Uh, they're not, it's not intuitively obvious which ones actually dry up first and which ones might have water longer term. Uh, you, you know, there are some clues that you can get, but I've I've actually gone to some really big potholes that are, you know, eight feet deep, and you'd swear they'd have to be holding water for a long time, and they're dry as a bone. And 200 feet away, there's a pothole with uh, three inches of water that, you know, is, is very minor. <laughs> and so it's not it, it's not obvious where those, you know, where those potholes are that tend to hold water either. Um, so you said you've been hiking and uh and traveling in grand canyon for about 30 years in that time like what are some of the changes that you've noticed the threats to the canyon seem to just increase year over year the threats from developers especially you know the idea of you know building a tram at the confluence of the colorado and the little colorado river for example the threats from uranium mining are still ongoing there's a mine that has big tailings piles that are exposed to the element in a, in a bowl, uh, basically a brasher pipe bowl that feeds in the Parashant Canyon that's kind of an open source sitting there today. And Parashant runs right into the Grand Canyon into the Colorado River. This particular mine goes down this drainage through the Supai, and then it starts to cut a slot canyon into the red wall. And we, we call that slot canyon, it's never been published, we call it radioactive because it, it's a beautiful canyon, it's stunning. But when you go through that slot canyon, you can look down in the water or in the gravels, and you can pick up big pieces of copper. And so the mine is called the Copper Mountain Mine, and they first discovered copper there and mined it for copper. And then in the 50s, I realized that there was uranium. It, it kicked into a full-blown uranium mine, and they stopped mining uranium there in 1974. And to this very day, there's been no remediation done at that site at all. And so, you know, if I can look in, in the waters and the gravels of this beautiful slot canyon and pick up copper, I'll guarantee you there's uranium there too. Uh, I just don't know what it looks like. So, you know, those there's some old wounds. The, the orphan mine is another perfect example. No matter how much money they end up spending, you know, through the Superfund site funds, you know, remediation of something like that once it's gone wrong is almost impossible. It's really hard. And they've been, you know, spending millions and millions of dollars at the orphan mine for years trying to remediate that site to keep, you know, uranium from leaching into the water. And it's still an ongoing project. 
They haven't even started on this site that I'm talking about and probably never will. It's kind of far enough out there that nobody really thinks about it. So certainly some of these threats are kind of accelerating in their, I guess maybe in the frequency or the audacity of some of the developers to do things, whether it's mining uranium or building a giant retail shopping space and homes in Tucson where a lot of water is required or building the tramway at the confluence. The idea that something the size of the Grand Canyon is large enough that it can't be impaired by man is really a folly. We continue to demonstrate that we can impair that place in a lot of different ways. Um, so, Rich, the last question we have for you, um, I guess, what do you hope for the future of Grand Canyon? Well, you know, I, I really hope that we have a status quo for the future. Uh, <laughs> I hope that that the various crazy development ideas that come along don't happen. You know, we don't need more development of the canyon. There are very, very few places where you've got large swaths of undeveloped wilderness, and and the Grand Canyon is probably the preeminent place in the lower 48 where you can literally go get lost. And, And I think there's some real value in that, and I think that the public deserves to have a place that lives up to the ideals of the Organic Act and when the Park Service, you know, when Grand Canyon was selected to be a national park and what the idea of the national park is. So I, I, I hope that there isn't any development of the confluence and, and there isn't development in any other part of the canyon. So I, 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 I hope for the status quo. I, I don't want to see the canyon developed or improved anymore. I don't think we can improve it anymore. I, there, there are obviously a few exceptions, right? I, I think the pipeline, for example, that provides drinking water to the canyon really needs to be fixed. We ought to be able to come up with you know, the, the money to, to do some basic infrastructure things because people do have a right to come see the park and enjoy it, and they ought to have the right to see parts of it by automobile and uh, or, or public transportation or whatever. But, you, you know, you got to have drinking water uh, as a basic piece of infrastructure that has to exist. So certainly continuing to invest and improve the infrastructure the park has in the corridor area, I think, is, is important. But I don't think we want to have any other big developments in other parts of the park that don't exist today. We gratefully acknowledge the Native peoples on whose ancestral homelands we gather, as well as the diverse and vibrant Native communities who make their home here today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Canyon Cuts, a behind-the-scenery micro-episode, brought to you by the North Rim and Canyon District Interpretation Teams at Grand Canyon National Park. I really wanted to get the, like, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Your passcode has been confirmed.